This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Greetings and welcome to Community Conversations on LCC Connect. I'm your host, Bo Garcia, Dean of the Community Education and Workforce Development Division at Lansing Community College. Community Conversations is a space where we explore business, workforce, and community development and discuss how these issues impact our quality of life and standard of living. Today, we will be interviewing Quentin Messer Jr., President and CEO of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, or MEDC. Quentin is a member of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's cabinet and serves on the boards of the American Center for Mobility, Michigan Israel Business Accelerator, International Economic Development Council, and others. He was named by Financial Times as a member of the Agenda Diversity 100, Crane's Detroit Business 50 Names to Know in Government, Business New Orleans CEO of the Year, by Consultants Connect as one of North America's top 50 economic developers and many other recognitions. Immediately prior to joining MEDC, Quentin was president and CEO at the New Orleans Business Alliance, which, under his leadership, became one of fewer than 80 accredited economic development organizations worldwide. Quentin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Bo. Happy and honored to be here. Great. So, Quentin, you know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're from, how you came to arrive at the MEDC, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am a native of Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I've moved around a number of different places, and as you mentioned, most immediately was uh, living in New Orleans, um, had been in Louisiana for almost a decade, and because I was back in the South, thought I was, thought that's where I would spend the rest of my career, but uh, was fortunate enough to be presented with a tremendous opportunity to apply for the position at MEDC, and I tell you, and it's been just over a year, so yesterday was one year of me starting this job. And I fall in madly in love with both peninsulas. It's a great capital region, great partners like uh, you and Bob Sice and his team at Leap and countless others. So I couldn't be more honored to, to uh, be here. I have the best job in economic development. I look forward to telling you why that is. Oh, thanks. Hey, we're the fortunate ones, truly. Um, so, so, Quinn, could you share with us uh, what the MEDC is, its mission, kind of purpose, services, maybe the 10,000-foot look at kind of why the MEDC is so important and, and how you make it happen? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. So I think the simplest way to think of our, our mission is we are the entity um, here for the state of, of Michigan focus on all 83 counties on both of the most wonderful peninsulas in the world, um, tasked with growing the economy. And growing the economy is not only just about small business or large business, but it's the tourism, hospitality sector. It is about the quality of place. It is about uh, making sure that the economy grows as a function of not just jobs or having the right environment, but that sense of place. And so our um, organization is tasked with doing all those things, but we don't do it in isolation. We do it with local partners, uh, regional partners across um, both peninsulas here in the capital region. We work with Leave, we work with the city of Lansing, we work with the city of East Lansing. And it has to be a team approach because at the end of the day, when people make decisions about where they believe they can realize economic hopes and aspirations, and particularly for the next generation, you need to have an environment in which you're growing, you're focused on talent, you're making it easy for businesses to operate, you're streamlining regulations, and we're doing all those things. And you, and you live and we operate in a globally competitive environment. Um, capital is mobile. Hmm. Uh, people can move all across the world, and we want people to realize that Michigan is the best place where they can grow um, their capital and also have a con uh, tremendous quality of place and quality of living. Boy, that's just critical work. I mean, it's under 
it's understated and underestimated show the impact. Well, speaking of of the function, now look, let's talk a little bit about the the impact. Can you tell us a little bit about you know what the impact has been of the MEDC you know over the last you know year or two, and you know for instance in relation to company recruitment and expansion and you know jobs created. Uh, economic impact and some, some big wins lately. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, we can always talk about and rattle off statistics, but really statistics don't matter is how are you impacting people's lives? Um, how are you impacting the dinner table? So one particular announcement, GM made their largest single site investment, $7 billion um, in Michigan. One is going to be an Orion Township um, in the eastern side of the state. The other is going to be right here in the Lansing region, Delta Township. And that was a team effort. It required um, leadership at the local level. It, allowed, uh, it required Lansing Board of Water and Light to be very creative. Shout out to them and their leadership for working with us. It, you know, it required Bob Tresice and his team at LEAP to really make sure that they um, came together and we had all the um, things that were required. In order to have these wins that you read about, whether it's in the, in the Lansing State Journal or the Wall Street Journal, wherever you might read about them, it's a team. Mm -hmm. It really is. And you have to win at the local, regional, and state level in order to attract international investment. The other thing that I think is critically important beyond just the jobs and for that particular opportunity, the GM opportunity, you know, as it ramps up to scale, be over. 4,000 new jobs, but it's critically important to think about the retained jobs. Mm -hmm. It's also critically important to think about the businesses who, you know, uh, people go to lunch or they celebrate people's retirement or, you know, promotions and things of that nature. So it's whether it's the, you know, the bars, the, the, the restaurants and things of that nature. When you look at the vibrancy of Old Town here in Lansing, it's a function of making sure that people are constantly growing here. You know, Lansing Community College, a tremendous asset. You've got to have young people or not so young people like me <laughs> who are thinking about, you know, what, you know, whether I want an associate degree or do I want to go to be retrained for an opportunity because the world is changing. And so these are the things that why economic development is not just about ribbon cuttings. It's not just about job announcements, but it's about how does it affect the community in which, in our case, 10 million plus Michiganders live, work, and play? Yeah. Are we affording them communities that are vibrant, going, have downtowns that their children, their grandchildren, their nieces and nephews will say, hey, I want to come back. Maybe I'll go and see the world. But when I think about starting that family or starting my career or entering a next life phase, we want to make sure that Lansing and all of Michigan is incredibly attractive. You know, that is so important. You just drew a picture of sustainability. You know, it's it's not just the inception and the growth. It's about the retention, sustainability, and the quality of life. And uh, so many different, you know, value propositions that the MEDC brings forth. And that's that's one of the things that uh, I think is so important about what you do. You know, it is, it is, it is, it is a coordinating body. Speaking of that, I mean, uh, you mentioned some, uh, some of the relationships you have with the, with the, with the public uh, uh, sector, you know, LEAP, et cetera, uh, city government, but you do a great deal of dialogue with pr the private sector as well. I, I, you know, talking to numerous companies, I mean, you're working uh, to, 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 to coordinate um, uh, what, what is a value to public and private sector partners, you know, uh, internationally, domestically? No, you're absolutely right. And we are in, um, I guess, the one way to think about this in very simple terms is we want to make sure that we become a place where ca capital, whether it's financial capital or human capital, where people say, look, that is a place where I can be successful. Very simply. I mean, mm -hmm. and when you do that, when you create that atmosphere, and, it's, and, it, and that's why it's a holistic thing, because we're not the sum total of what we do professionally. Mm -hmm. It's what we do out of the office. It's the type of environment we want to have our family, our friends, and things of that nature. And so that's the great thing about Michigan. And one of the challenges that my colleagues and I have at MEDC working with you and others to get the word out. I think Michiganders are a little too humble. Mm. There's a lot for mm. which 
we can about which we can be proud of. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are always going to be challenges. You can always get better. I'm a huge spokes fanatic. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to <laughs> any great coach, there's never a perfect game. You can always get better. But you have to celebrate what you have, and you also have to change the atmosphere about what you're saying about your place. Mm-hmm. So when I moved to Michigan, I was shocked. I never heard so many people complain about the weather. <laughs> I had just left Louisiana and had evacuated from a hurricane. If you've never, <laughs> hopefully you will never have to evacuate from a hurricane, but that's stressful. Mm-hmm. That is something to discuss about weather. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe it's cold. You can get layers <laughs> for that. Right. Um, people talk, oh, it's great. You can get lamps for that. There's so many things you can do. But when you look at some of the crystal clear weather we've had recently, oh. and you look at the Grand River, or when people go to their late colleges, whether it's up north or in the UP, um, shout out to uh, Mackinac Island being mm-hmm. voted one of the best um, places here in the continental USA. Shout out to Detroit being one of the mm-hmm. great cities that was recognized by Time Magazine. We have so many tremendous oh. assets. Absolutely. And even here in the Lansing region, I think we undervalue how beautiful, beautiful the, you know, the banks of the red cedar mm-hmm. right you know, go green, right? Go white. There you go. Um, and so I take no favorites in that <laughs> Michigan state UM. Um, and I think UM is going to have a great leader. Um, and so someone that's coming, look, I think that's a tremendous story. Uh, UM is about to announce a new leader has been reported all over the press. Mm-hmm. Here is a Dr. Ono is someone that could be anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. He's been all over the world. He's a globally renowned researcher, mm-hmm. high ed administrator. He's currently in UBC. Um, you know, people say, oh, the British Columbia is beautiful. He's bringing his talents to Ann Arbor yeah. for a reason, because of the tremendous assets that are at University of Michigan. If you look at Michigan State, I can't say enough about what Dr. Stanley and his leadership team are right. doing at Michigan. The great team here at Lansing Community College, these type of opportunities. Lansing Community College is making career um, vitality, mobility, accessibility, mm-hmm. permissible yes. for so many members of our community. So true. And that's an invaluable mm-hmm. service because what learning does mm-hmm. is provide hope. It provides mm-hmm. that, that vision to see yourself mm-hmm. into the possible. And I can't say enough about the educational assets mm-hmm. that we have here. And that's a vital part of winning. If you cannot cultivate and and, and, and really grow your talent yeah. and give them hope and a trajectory for the future, mm-hmm. then shame on us. But we, we are doing tremendous work as Team Michigan, and we have tremendous opportunities for the future. Oh, couldn't agree with you more. And, and that spear, that tip of the spear that you have is so vitally important because it creates the opportunities. And with the opportunities, accessibility, as you said, to create a vision for a community and, and students and individuals to, to aspire to, uh, you know, improving the quality of lives and standards of living for them and their children's passing it all on. And, and, you know, speaking of humility, I mean, the, the LTM, uh, um, uh, recruitment effort, 1,700 jobs to the area here. Thank you for that. Congratulations to you and your team. You know, what an, what, an, what an amazing and tremendous accomplishment. And so, you know, having said that, you know, for our listeners, you know, we, when we talk uh, about um, industry recruitment and development and retention and expansion, you know, um, how, does, how does that affect the the, the wages, you know, poverty levels, crime rate, education, employment for our community members, the work that you do? No, it's a great question. So I think there, it really affects it in really three specific ways. One is typically um, when you look at those social determinants of health that, you know, reflect on negative behaviors, whether it's crime or generational poverty, it's a function of lack of opportunity. And what you see with job growth is opportunity at all wage levels, all educational attainment levels. If you have a growing and vibrant economy, you may have people who say, hey, look, I want to open a restaurant. I want to open a barbershop. I want to open something that's in the service sector. And if people are employed at the Delta Township and the continuance of the other facilities here, um, we were seeing now state government return back to downtown. That's providing opportunities for people to realize and have um, jobs and entrepreneurial aspirations right here in place. 
The second thing is it allows you to have more and more people um, uh, uh, pay into and expand your tax base. Mm -hmm. So those investments that have to be made in public education, not only at the K-12, but at the two and four year levels, Mm -hmm. you're not asking fewer people to do more. You're asking more people to share in the obligation. Beautiful. It's a growing tax base allows you to address issues of mental health, mm-hmm. allows you to answer issues of public education, um, you know, opportunities to work with people who are uh, uh, formerly incarcerated, returning citizens, mm-hmm. giving them opportunities once they've paid their debt to society to participate in renewing and revitalization of their communities. You know, recently I was actually with Bob at a wonderful event at Allen Park. Mm. They did a tremendous work in revitalizing a community center that's going to be a hub of activity. Mm-hmm. And they are going to have entrepreneurial things focused on food. But what's clear about that was the importance of making sure that people could see the sense of the possible mm-hmm. close proximate to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a big part of what we're doing at MBC. Yes, it's the ultimate. But the reason why it has is because when you're employed, you have to go live somewhere mm-hmm. in your neighborhoods. You, you, there's a momentum. There's a pride. There is a sense of the possible. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe, and this is a, the absolute last point on this, is that I, I have three children. And whether you have children or not, most people have niece or nephews or, or even pets. Most of us want lives better. Mm-hmm. for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And that's what jobs and economic opportunity afford people a vision of what's possible nearby. Right. And, and that's why um, I'm excited. A lot of work needs to be done. We haven't mm-hmm. solved it all. But I like the fact that Michigan and the capital region has what it takes. Wow. Wow. Phenomenal. Right on. I mean, that was beautiful. And you're right. I mean, the purpose of business and workforce and community development. Well, you know, that's economic development. You know, it's, it's about, it, it's in, in its own way. It's like, it's a form of social work to, 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 to help those in our community uh, to experience lives more fully and equitably and, um, and uh, uh, just, just better. And to whatever degree that we can, you know, uh, we do. And the work that the MADC is doing is, just phenomenal. I just cannot say enough about that. I've I've uh, been uh, um, engaged with with MEDC for for decades now, and uh, have always had a tremendous respect and appreciation for what you do. You're right; it is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. You you work hard. Your team works hard, but the results are phenomenal. So thank you for that. And you know, finally, Quinn, what uh, what what type of trends you know might there be emerging within the state uh, or region? Uh, our, our listeners might be interested in considering as it relates to their education or career change or upskilling. I know there's, you know, uh, battery cells and EV and, you know, any, in any particular area where, where those uh, individuals who are just kind of a, at a place in time where they're like, you know, what is my next move? Any thoughts on that at all? No, great question. Um, and I really appreciate you affording me with this opportunity. I, I'm going to answer it in two different ways. I think the first thing I would say is really from personal experience, um, tap into your authentic self Mm. and pursue what you perceive your purpose to be. I mean, I went and tried to do a lot of different things because that's what a trend is. Investment banking and (laughs) corporate law and this and that. But really, what, I'm a Christian, so I don't hide from it. But what God wanted me to do mm-hmm. was to do exactly what I'm doing in academic development. And, and once you plug into that, then doors that you can't ever imagine will be open for you. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, there are a couple of things I, I, would, I would put on people's radar for consideration. Michigan is going to be a state that's going to win because of extreme weather and climate. I alluded to the fact of having to... Um, evacuate from a hurricane. Mm-hmm. As extreme weather happens more frequently, and we've had it here in the state, but comparatively speaking to other states, mm-hmm. Michigan is going to be a weather winner. So we're going to be seeing migration as a consequence of that mm-hmm. over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Mm. 
the second thing, I think related to the transition from the internal combustion engine to, uh, to batteries, there are going to be a different type of battery technologies. So in addition to the actual assembly plants, the battery plants can be very important. So if you are um, mechanically inclined, but maybe you don't want to go uh, for a four-year degree, consider becoming a process technologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. programs here sure. that allow you to to know how to be very advanced in handling chemicals and, and, and electronics and, and understanding to have the rigor of being quality assurance um, mm-hmm. in a number of these advanced technology processes because it's going to be incredibly important. And it's not just only um, directly related to the automotive sector, but semiconductors um, and other advanced manufacturing. I mean, you know, the great thing about Lansing is it's so proximate to Grand Rapids and to uh, Kalamazoo and Portage and Battle Creek and Jackson. I also think one of one of the sectors here that's very underrated, but is consistent, mm-hmm. is durable, and really has a multitude of really fascinating jobs is the insurance industry. Oh yeah, insurance okay. tech. Absolutely. I know you have great programs here mm-hmm. focused on that. I mean, whether you are in software engineering or big data analytics or a user uh, uh, interface experience or just customer care, we have great insurance, you know, Jackson Financial and auto owners and mm-hmm. AF and, and Delta Dental, Dental and countless others. And, you know, in Grand Rapids, Acrisure, Mm-hmm. which is uh, a tremendous insurance company, privately held. They are growing leaps and bounds. They purchased the naming rights to Heinz Field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Imagine any Michigan-based company, mm-hmm. not publicly traded. It's going to be the Acrisure Field, I believe. Excellent. And that's insurance. And so these are opportunities that are within, that not only physically here in the capital region, but within less than an hour away. Right. So these are some of the things, but... First of all, always be true to yourself. Be true to your authentic aspirations. And, you know, some of it, things are cliche because they're true. Mm-hmm. You got to work hard. Yep. You got to try to always have a customer care uh, orientation. You always have to try to figure out how you can get the yes. And I think the mm-hmm. biggest thing, and I've, I've, I've learned this over the years, gratitude is the seed for the mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. And I think Michiganders have such a, kindness and I've been extended so much grace. And I think if you're thinking about making that next journey in your life, remember gratitude is the seed of the more. So when you make that deposit, that deposit of thank you or I appreciate or or you know, that's when it's going to be activating the more for you. So um, I'm excited. I can't I could talk for hours. I know you don't have hours to hear me blather on about what's going on, but we are on the precipice of tremendous breakthroughs, not only in the capital region, but across these two beautiful peninsulas here in Michigan. Wow. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I will say, Quentin, you are the right person in the right place at the right time. I truly believe that. You know, and so much of what you just said resonates, you know, very personally as well. I am a firm believer in you, know, you do the right thing for the right reason, the right thing will happen. You know, your your, your motives in the bright place, you know, uh, uh, use your head, use your heart, that, that balance between the two, um, with, with, a, with a long-term vision, you know, for the greater good, um, as just righteous. I mean, I truly enjoyed this time together. So I just, just want to say, you know, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, graciously appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy day to, to be with us today. And, uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. I look forward to, thank you for affording me the opportunity. This has been your host, Bo Garcia. Thank you all for the pleasure and privilege of your time. You can listen to LCC Connect programming on 89.7 FM, Saturdays at 1 p.m. and Sundays at 6 p.m. Have a tremendous day. Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan industries through education for more than 65 years. 
Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu slash youbelong. If you or someone you know lives with epilepsy, be aware of an uncommon but fatal complication called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, also known as SUDEP. It is the sudden unexpected death of a person with epilepsy who is otherwise healthy. Each year, SUDEP kills 1 in 1,000 adults with epilepsy and 1 in 4,500 children with epilepsy. The American Academy of Neurology and the American Epilepsy Society have released a new medical guideline to help patients, families, and caregivers better understand SUDEP and its risk factors. A high-risk factor is generalized tonic-clonic seizures that involve the entire body. The guideline shows that reducing the number of tonic-clonic seizures could lower the risk of SUDEP. If you have epilepsy, it is important that you talk with your neurologist. To learn more about SUDEP, visit aan.com slash guidelines. That's aan.com slash guidelines. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship available to graduating high school seniors. Find information at lcc.edu slash hope. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. We begin this episode of Land Stories with a correction. In the episode that discussed the creation of Lansing Community College's downtown campus and the construction of Dart Auditorium, I had mentioned that there was a house on Lansing Community College's campus called the Turner House, and that it had been demolished in the close proximity of time in which Dart Auditorium was built, which is around 1980. But that was incorrect, and I want to thank my colleague Rob Edwards for pointing out my error. The building that uh, is in question, the Turner House, actually stood for quite a bit longer than that. It was not torn down until sometime in the early part of the first decade of this century. So that would be the early 2000s. And again, thank you very much, Rob, for correcting me on my error. And if any of you ever have a correction, question, comment, concern, feel free to get a hold of me. My contact details are on the webpage, lccconnect.org, where you can find past episodes of this program, plus all of the others that we produce here as part of the LCC Connect series. The idea of memory, therefore, and why some people remember one thing one way, remember one thing the other, or why certain people think they know something about a historical event, a historical person, a historical phenomenon, and when it turns out, well, actually, this story is a little bit different than what they initially thought. That is the theme of this episode of Land Stories. And to begin that exploration of that idea, we are going to take another little stroll around downtown Lansing. For those of you that have listened to past episodes, you know that we like to take strolls around Lansing on this program, and we are going to do that. Our stroll today is going to take us not very far from Lansing Community College's campus. We're going to walk just a couple blocks to the south down Capitol Avenue, and we're going to stand in front of the beautiful Michigan Capitol building. We're going to walk up the sidewalk that takes us to the main entrance of the building, but we're not going to go into that building. We're going to stop. We're going to stop because we're going to encounter a statue. 
a statue of a man by the name of Austin Blair. There are many monuments and statues on the Capitol lawn, but actually there's only one that is of an actual person, meaning the other statues or monuments are representative of certain events, uh, groups of people. Many of them are war monuments, actually. Many of them are Civil War era monuments. And in fact, the state capitol building itself is in many ways a gigantic monument, a living monument, a working monument to Michigan's contribution to the Union during the Civil War. And it is that war, the Civil War, that brings us to the man that we're looking at on top of a pedestal. That man is Austin Blair. And Austin Blair has the distinction of being the only person with a statue honoring him on the Michigan Capitol lawn for a very good reason. And that reason is indeed because of his contributions to the preservation of the Union during the Civil War. But our look at Austin Blair gives us an opportunity, therefore, to also consider the concept of historical memory, to look at why certain things are remembered or forgotten in the way they are. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as it turns out, somewhere deep in the caverns of my mind's filing system, I believe the inspiration for this episode came many years ago. It is probably not going to surprise any of you out there if I told you that I saw something on social media, and that sparked an idea in my mind. Here's what I saw on social media. I saw Confederate flags in the back of people's pickup trucks who were parked at or about Austin Blair Park in Jackson. And this was several years ago. And it was a rally that took place around about the time, actually, of the summer that, not too far from there, many years earlier, the Republican Party was founded. And Austin Blair had a role to play in the Republican Party. I'm going to discuss that in a moment. It was a very important role. He's actually one of the founders of the Republican Party. And, as I will also discuss momentarily, that party had its founding at a meeting in Jackson, Michigan on the 6th of July in 1854. So why then would a park bearing the name of one of the people who truly did keep the United States together during that terrible civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, a war that in Austin's Blair's own words, was fought over what he called the vilest crime in existence, slavery, have a rally in the 21st century of people bearing a banner that, while not the state banner of the Confederacy, nonetheless has, through the years, come to define in popular culture nowadays the side that, well lost the Civil War, and indeed tried to break the Union apart. That brings to mind historical memory. And historical memory is something that, on the sounds of it, it sounds like, what the heck is he talking about, historical memory? How can somebody remember something historically if he or she did not live through that event? Ah, that is the distinction, really, of what we mean by historical memory compared to memory. So, I have memory. You have memory. I have memory of being in Jackson, Michigan. I've been there many times, actually. Uh, having grown up in the southern part of Michigan, Jackson was not that far of a drive from where I grew up, over by Kalamazoo. And so I've been there many times, and I've even been to the park that the meeting of the Republican Party was held in 1854 that I referenced only moments ago. And I had that memory because I've been there before. But I also have in my mind 
what one might call the collective memory of a nation. And the collective memory of the American nation is something that we inherit through our schools, through our parents, our grandparents, our older siblings, our aunts and uncles, our cousins, our best friends, our work colleagues, the news media that we consume, the podcasts we listen to, the radio programs that we enjoy. Through all of those transmissions of knowledge, we end up forming an idea of the past. Whether we realize it or not, most of that programming, most of that information that we receive has a historical component to it. If you take the word history out of it, it actually seems quite obvious. For example, how do you know if you haven't filled your car up with gasoline in a few weeks that the price of gas is four and a half or five dollars a gallon? Well, because probably somebody told you, or you drove down the road and you saw the sign outside of a gas station that read 479 or 489 or 529, depending on how recently you filled up. And that's information that's transmitted to you. You drive by that same gas station six months from now, and maybe gas is $6.99 a gallon. Maybe it's $2.99 a gallon. And you remember back to six months prior when it was $4.89 a gallon. And you have a memory of what happened. And you can talk to other people about it, and you can all sit around and chat about the price of gas, where it's been, where it's going, and you are engaging in an episode of historical memory. Now think about issues that come and go, but also think about events that happen to a nation that exist over an extended period of time and develop over extended periods of time to the point where the collective body politic experiences those events. And everybody experiences them differently because all of us have our own perception of the events going on around us. But there's enough sharing of knowledge that as we experience these events together and they become part of our culture, they become part of our mindset, we develop a concept of nationhood. We identify with certain themes, with certain ideas, with certain people. And as the nation develops historically, over time, we pass these ideas on to all the relationships that I mentioned only moments ago. So this all, indeed, is a bit of an endeavor into postmodern historical theory, which is something that was quite prominent in the 1960s and 70s especially. But we won't go too far down that road. Not on this episode, maybe in a later date. For now, I want us to think about that idea of historical memory. And in doing so, let's get back for just a moment to the Confederate flags flying high there at Austin Blair Park in Jackson, Michigan, a few years ago. How do we get to the point where a park that is named in honor of one of the men who, well, worked hard, as an understatement, to preserve the Union, actually he staked his entire political career on it, we're going to talk about that here momentarily, and indeed lived through an event that killed hundreds of thousands of people. It is absolutely impossible, really, to adequately uh, explain, I think, now the really what the Civil War meant to the people that lived through it and, of course, the people that didn't survive through it. The best, the best uh, description I think I can have you read is from... An, an absolutely outstanding book that was published a few years ago by a historian. Her name is Drew Gilpin Faust, and the book is called This Republic of Suffering. And if any of you have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, 
It has often been remarked that the opening scene of that movie is one of the more accurate uh, depictions on film of what it was like to be part of that operation during the Second World War. Uh, it's a very uh, riveting piece of film, and quite frankly, it's it's difficult to watch. Actually, when you put your try to put your mind uh, into the people who actually lived through that event, and many of us, myself included, certainly know people that are new, unfortunately now, many of them have passed away, but new people that that did indeed live through that event. The first chapter of the book, This Republic of Suffering, is very much a literary um, accomplishment of a similar magnitude in terms of really getting to the heart of what the Civil War was like in the sheer violence and horror of those who lived through it. So how do we get then to the early part of the 2010s? And all of that horror, all of that destruction that was the attempt at dismantling the United States... How do we get to the point where people probably with little, if any, knowledge of what the Confederate flag, as we call it nowadays, actually stood for? How do we get to the point where they're flying that on a park named after the governor of Michigan, one of the founders of the Republican Party, whose raison d'etat during the time, was to preserve the Union and prevent the very cause that that flag stood for from destroying that Union. We're going to get to, as far as we can, uh, in answering that question. And I want to keep this in mind as we're, we're exploring the idea of memory. So let's span the decades. We're actually going to span the centuries now. And let's go back to the beginning of Austin Blair's life. And it starts not far actually from a place in New York that made its appearance on Land Stories just a few episodes ago. Uh, for those of you who our faithful listeners to this program, you will remember a few episodes ago we discussed who Lansing's named after. And Lansing, as it turns out, is named after a gentleman by the name of John Lansing Jr. because Lansing, Michigan is named after Lansing, New York, which is named after John Lansing Jr. And go back and listen to that episode of Land Stories and you will be fascinated to learn all of the connections that Michigan has with the state of New York in the 19th century. And as it turns out, Austin Blair is another one. He is another individual that we can trace back to the state of New York. Blair was born in Caroline, New York. Caroline is a tiny little town along the way to Ithaca, and it's only about 20 miles, actually, from Lansing, New York. So we're in upstate New York, as the region's called now, not far from the Finger Lakes region. And in 1818, on the 18th of February, actually, Austin Blair was born in Caroline, New York. He grew up in New York, uh, studied law, was admitted to the New York bar, and then, like many people from New York, he ended up moving to Michigan. Michigan was one of the uh, most sought-after places to move in the United States in the 1830s, the 1840s. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We had lots of good agricultural land here. Michigan was deemed to have a very favorable climate compared to other parts of the country at the time. And... Of course, Michigan had a very ample supply of water. The very same reasons why, in the year 2022, uh, 
people still find Michigan to be a very useful place to live. So Austin Blair moves here in 1841. And in 1841, he enters politics. He first is elected as the clerk of Eaton County. And then he ends up moving to Jackson. And from there, he gets elected to the State House in 1845. In 1848, he is a delegate to the Free Soil National Convention in Buffalo. And the Free Soil National Convention was called so because this was the Free Soil Party. And we're going to have to take a little bit of a, a turn away from the biography of Austin Blair to look at the politics he was becoming a very important part of at the time. And that political movement that the Free Soil Party and others that popped up beginning in the 1840s and especially in the 1850s was part of the political realignment that the United States was undergoing at the time. The Free Soil Party, as its name would suggest, was a party that was formed over opposing the expansion of slavery. Free soil referring to the idea that as the United States expanded territorially westward, those territories would be free of slavery when they became states uh, admitted to the Union. And the Free Soil Party really formed um, as a result of the Mexican-American War. All of the issues that propped up During and after that war, uh, involving the territory expansion of the United States, slavery being a huge one, and ultimately the inability of the Whig Party to remain united over whether or not they would oppose slavery's expansion or would agree to what was known as popular sovereignty at the time, which was the idea that people that were moving into the new territories would be able to decide Uh, through elections, whether or not slavery would be allowed to uh, expand or not. The Free Soil Party didn't last very long, and ultimately many of those, like Blair, who were involved in the uh, early formation of the Free Soil Party, ended up forming the Republican Party. And we'll turn our story now back to Austin Blair, because it is really that moment that he uh, is going to become very prominent, not only in Michigan politics, but national politics. So Blair is elected to the Michigan State Senate in 1854, and that same year, on the 6th of July of 1854, what I mentioned here a few moments ago, the first Republican Party convention takes place. Convention eh, may be a little bit of a stretch of the word, It was a meeting held in Jackson, Jackson, Michigan, where Blair was living at the time. And that meeting consisted of men such as Blair, where they formed a party that would formally take a stand opposing the expansion of slavery, but also, and a lot of people forget this about the Republican Party, would tie in their opposition to the expansion of slavery with what was at the time deemed a very uh, progressive, and some might even say uh, activist, economic policy in regards to the role that the government would play in what they believed was fostering economic growth. So the Republican Party is definitely a party that is founded over the issue of slavery, is very, very, very important, though, to note that the Republican Party's official stance was anti-slavery. It was not abolition. And that is not a technicality of word usage. The two were very different. Those that were abolitionists, as the name suggests, wanted to abolish slavery immediately and permanently, wherever it existed, and they wanted to do so by, well, in some cases, 
to quote a much later um, American historical figure, any means necessary. The anti-slavery stance, which is actually what the majority of the people that were opposed to the expansion of slavery believed in, was actually as much an economic argument as it was a moral argument. Anti-slavery folks believed that slavery was an economically backward system. Many anti-slavery people also agreed with the abolitionists that it was a morally corrupt system. And being a combination of the two, anti-slavery people believed that the growth and progress and prosperity of the United States would forever be slowed by the existence of slavery. But they also recognized that much of the American economy was dependent upon slavery, both South and North. And they also recognized that the union of the American states would absolutely be threatened should slavery be abolished immediately or it proposed to be abolished immediately because many of the folks who were in politics at the time, of course, many of the prominent businessmen in America, they owned slaves. So the anti-slavery folks had the stance that if slavery were prevented from expanding further, it would die a natural death, and in doing so, would allow the United States to rid itself of this economically backward and morally corrupt institution, and thereby, in the minds of the anti-slavery folks, this was a way that the U.S. could accomplish the end of slavery without tearing the nation apart. Now, as it turns out, though, the anti-slavery stance was deemed by many Americans, North and South, to be an extremist stance. I think it goes without saying that Southerners who were slave owners would believe that, but it may be surprising to hear that there were a fair amount of Northerners, too, who believed that the anti-slavery stance was too radical. And... A lot of those folks instead adopted the idea that Lewis Cass, for example, a prominent Michigander from this era, uh, professed, and that was the idea of popular sovereignty, which I mentioned a moment ago. The idea that as the nation expanded, the issue of slavery could be resolved by having the people who moved into the newly acquired territories decide for themselves through election whether or not slavery uh, would exist. And that turned out to be viewed as the ultimate compromise position. Now, ultimately, though, the politics of the United States became polarized greatly over the issue of slavery. No uh, single stance was deemed to be sufficiently uh, acceptable to all regions of the United States. Those who were abolitionists believed that it was a moral wrong and slavery had to be done away with immediately. They were a minority, but they were a very powerful minority in some parts of the country. The anti-slavery folks, men like Austin Blair, who eventually formed into the Republican Party, believed that the economic backwardness of slavery combined with its moral corruption deemed it to be an institution that needed to be done away with but in a manner which did not harm the Union. And then the popular sovereignty folks believed this was an issue that could be voted away, and then those from the South, who are slaveholders, as well as some people from the North, too, um, believed that slavery needed to be allowed to persist. It was a states' rights issue. It was also, in their words, a moral issue. Very hard for us nowadays to even, I think, imagine that there were those who would argue that slavery was a morally wholesome and even necessary institution. Whether or not they believed that in between their own ears, there were certainly folks who did publicly profess such stance.
And that's the background thereby which the meeting in 1854 took place. And the formation of the Republican Party is one of these extremely important events in American history that has been remembered collectively in a variety of ways, um, some not so uh, serious, for example. Uh, the town of Racine, Wisconsin, also had one of the very first meetings of the organization of the party that became known as the Republicans, and they claimed themselves to be the home of the Republican Party, just as Jackson, Michigan does, as the organization there that took place in 1854. Some of the historical memory of the Republican Party, of course, is much more serious because it is tied so deeply into this absolutely cataclysmic event that eventually happens in the United States, that would be the Civil War. Austin Blair, then, features prominently in national Republican Party politics and, of course, state Republican Party politics, statewide leadership, national leadership, from really that point in 1854 on, when he begins his prominent role in the formation of the National Republican Party. And that's where we're going to leave off with this episode. Next episode of Land Stories, we will pick up here with our story of Austin Blair, and we are going to examine what happens next not only in the formation of the republican party but of course in austin blair's life and as it turns out that statue that stands in front of the michigan capitol building that we begin our exploration of blair with at the beginning of this episode has quite the story to tell behind the man it depicts You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College students now have the option to go beyond an associate degree through LCC's University Center. The University Center is a partnership between LCC and five four-year universities. Located on LCC's downtown campus, these universities offer junior and senior level courses. To find out more about the University Center, visit lcc.edu. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply transfer credits towards their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, 
connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.